the people who are going to be making the rules in America, the people who are going to be obeying the rules in America, will all have this unified sense of what the national interest entails. And so we will not have to deal with parties. We will not have to deal with factions of the sort that had royal British politics for decades. Imagine living in a country riven by political discord and strife. One party works to steal the election from the other. Politicians who are, in the eyes of their opposition, wholly unfit for office are running for and winning some of the highest elected positions in the country. This may sound familiar, but it's actually a tale of some of the earliest days of the United States. The characters are not Trump, Biden, Obama, or any of those others, but rather Adams, Jefferson, Hamilton. Join us as we explore some of the earliest and most contentious days of our country in the recently released book, Founding Partisans. This is Riches in Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. H.W. Brands is the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair of History at the University of Texas at Austin. Beyond that, he is a New York Times bestselling author of more than 30 books and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in biography for two separate books, The First American and Traitor to His Class. He recently released a new book that's fantastic, and it's called Founding Partisans, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams, and the Brawling Birth of American Politics. You can learn more about H.W. Brands and his work at hwbrands.substack.com. Bill, thanks for joining. Really appreciate it, and I've been looking forward to the conversation. My pleasure. Glad to be here. You know, the brawling nature of politics in the early U.S. is really what emerged in the book, because, man, you think it's bloody and nasty now. It was bloody and nasty back then as well, and I was so struck by how I think we look in history a lot and think, oh, there's the kinder, gentler times back then. But that just wasn't the case. It was nasty. Well, you know, it's all those guys in the powdered wigs. And you think once they put on the powdered wigs, they act, act formally and they act genteely. But no, we, no, you're quite right. In fact, I mean, the striking thing about this story is that the political classes, I would say human nature, hasn't changed a whole lot in the 200 years, almost 250 years now that the United States has been an independent country. And so if we see partisanship today, we really shouldn't be surprised to see it in an earlier time. People were as ambitious then. They were as divided in their views about what the, the best interests of the country were. And here's the key, that they created a system of competitive politics. And in competitive politics, people compete. And strong-minded people, they compete in a very vigorous way. So when I write a about the past, sometimes I, I I think of myself as a time traveler, and I'll and I'll and when so people ask me what I've learned, I say, okay, I've, well, I've been to the 18th century, and I return with good news and bad news. And the bad news is that you know that partisanship, the the nasty politics we see today, it's been with us forever, so it's probably not going to go away. That's the bad news. The good news is, well, it hasn't killed us in 230 years, so it's probably not going to kill us anytime soon. Yeah, that was really the core feeling I came away with. And I was curious, you've written a lot about many time periods. Why was it this kind of founding moment? And I say moment, it was, it was a relatively long period of time, a couple of decades, but why was it that 
founding moment that interested you enough to write an entire book about it, this go-round? So when institutions exist for a while, they take on an air of permanency or inevitability, and they develop constituencies. People who benefit from a status quo, they tend to line up to preserve the status quo. But once you break the status quo, then it's as though everything is up in the air, and nobody has an inside track, and nobody really has, has more knowledge, more expertise than anybody else. The American War for Independence was that breaking of the old model. And so they overthrew, they rejected the existing government. It's important to note in this that governments until then had almost always emerged organically. So they grew out of something that came before. And this is where monarchy emerged, but even, even the sort of constitutional monarchy that Britain had. So they still had a monarch. Britain still has a monarch, for heaven's sakes. And they had changed over time. But the idea that you could just sort of smash it and start over again. Well, once they smashed it, once they said we're no longer part of the British Empire, they had no choice but to start over again. And so what they started over with were these republics. And the United States was a republic, but here's an important aspect of the story. So were separately each of the 13 states. And this is one of the things that made it so complicated. And this is the heart of the issue that's behind all the debate over the Constitution, the writing of the Constitution in 1787, its ratification in the next couple of years, and the beginning of its operation in the 1790s. And I would add, it's exactly the same question we're arguing about today. Where in this multi-level system of government, where the separate states today, nobody would call them independent republics. They were indeed independent republics under the Articles of Confederation, under the terms immediately inherited from independence. But in adopting this constitution, they became this confederated republic. But what in the world does a confederated republic mean? We argued about it in the 1790s. That's a major part of my story. We argued about it in the 1850s and 1860s, giving rise, of course, to the Civil War. We argue about it today. So how do you, how do you fit these pieces together? And beneath it all was this fundamental question. And it was a question that was very worrying for everybody involved in the 1780s and 1790s. Can people govern themselves? The idea of a republic, especially a republic you just created de novo. These guys sit down and they write this constitution for this republic. Who's going to believe it? Who's going to obey it? Who's going to enforce it? How does all this stuff fit together? Nobody knew. The one, I would say, advantage that that generation of partisans, and I do call them founding partisans in the book, have over our generation of partisans is that they were perfectly aware that this thing might fall apart in a moment. In fact, the Constitution of 1787 was their second try. They had had this other constitution, and before it was five years old, they decided, let's get rid of it, let's try something else. They had no particular reason to think that somebody would come along, maybe they themselves would change their minds. And five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, they said, ah, this didn't work so well, let's chuck it out and try again. So they knew that they had to treat this new thing with some care. You can't just sort of beat it around and expect it to survive. Now, as I say, that was their advantage over us in that they knew that this thing might fall apart. We don't know that our system might fall apart, but it's, it's worth sort of a reminder of this earlier time that in fact, the only thing that holds up our system in the year 2023 is the belief of the people involved in the system and the need to keep the system together, to keep this experiment, it's an ongoing experiment even today, this experiment self-government going. That, let's call it fragility, did really stand out to me in the book. The, 
the institutions feel very strong when you're sitting in them, as you and I are today here. It, it feels strong. My gosh, it's the U.S. government. That feels like a massive thing. But there's this fragility that comes out time and time again throughout the book. And I, I want to come back to that after we explore some of what you touch on, because I found that really compelling. It, it's, it's something that feels alien to us today, I think. And I'll just add, one of the things that underscores the difference between then and now is, of course, if you go to Washington, D.C., you see these institutions of government in granite and marble. You, you know, they have this solid form. But back in the 1790s, the U.S. government was operating primarily in borrowed premises. Right. Much more ethereal back then. Yeah. I mean, the Supreme Court. What was the Supreme Court? It was, it was these guys, and nobody knew what they were supposed to do. And they didn't have their own building. They didn't have their own chamber. The Congress, again, in you know, it met in its own place. And when they finally moved to Washington at the very end of my story, they have this unfinished structure. It remains unfinished for, for decades afterwards. So, yeah, they knew that this was this is something new and it might not last. So let's kind of set ourselves up in history. You, you, you touched on this late 1790s, the Civil War is in full swing. That's really where the book picks up takes us through to the end of Monroe's presidency, if I'm not mistaken, where he was kind of in the sunset years. Yeah. So I really begin the story in the late 1770s, and the Revolutionary War is underway. It's not at all clear that the patriots, the ones who are in favor of independence, are going to win. And in fact, they know perfectly well that opinion is not uniformly behind them within the United States. There is this very strong element of the people called loyalists, or as they often called them, Tories, who were fighting against independence. They wanted to remain, they wanted the American colonies to remain attached to Britain. So you've got this first fundamental divide, and it's a divide that, well, we would call it murderous, except it took place in the context of war, but it was lethal. And patriots and loyalists were fighting against each other. Now keep keep this in mind because once the war ends, and the war ends fairly early in my story, then there is this belief that, okay, the divisions that we've suffered during the war, they've ended. And they did end in a very specific way. Because at the end of the war, all of the conspicuous loyalists left. They got on board the British ships as the British were evacuating. They sailed away to Canada or to England or the West Indies or somewhere else. And so for a moment, it appeared that Americans were unified because these people who had taken the other side, they're gone. And so in the immediate aftermath, of the victory in the Revolutionary War, it was possible to believe that there was this single, what shall we say, civic interest, and that and all the people who shared this interest were virtuous, of course, and they were brave because they had put their lives on the line during the Revolutionary War. And so if they could hold together and if they could do these great things out of concern for the national interest during wartime, where they, you know, they could have died in the service of the country, then the minor differences that people might have during peacetime, those would be easy to paper over. Those would be easy to accommodate. Now, it turned out that wasn't true, but it was, it, it was one of the reasons that very many of the people, very many of the founders themselves, they thought that, they certainly hoped that, this new republic would be spared the partisan differences, the factionalism. Faction was the term they used in preference to party. That factions would not affect the United States the way they had affected, indeed, infested British politics. It was very easy for these Americans now to blame the bad legislation that had given rise to independence on factionalism in Britain. And the factions there were often associated with the court, the, the people who got their influence from the king, 
and then the more popular party. It was more complicated than that, but it was easy to, to view it that way from a distance. And so there was this belief that, this hope, that we're not going to be troubled by that. And the people who are going to be making the rules in America, the people who are going to be obeying the rules in America, will all have this unified sense of what the national interest entails. And so we will not have to deal with parties. We will not have to deal with factions of the sort that had royal British politics for decades. One of the very early quotations in the book that made me chuckle a little bit was, it was Alexander Hamilton writing to George Clinton. And I think it's kind of emblematic of, of this thing you're talking about right here, where there, if you say there was a moment of this, this very, you might say, naive hope looking backwards that there wouldn't be this partisanship, uh, Hamilton wrote to George Clinton, and I think you could read this in the news today, although the language would probably be a little bit less flowery, but he wrote, folly, caprice, a want of foresight, comprehension, and dignity characterize the general tenor of their actions. And he was talking about Congress during independence. And I, I thought that was so funny. Like You could read that about someone talking about Congress today. So this is a recurring theme that came up to me is like, there's this moment where there's this hope, as you just touched on, and, and yet we just get slung back into the mud where we're, we're really just mired in criticism back and forth from the earliest moments of the Republic. And, and we just can't escape that despite this, this naive hope, I think, looking backwards. So this is an aspect of human nature, at least in my interpretation of human nature, derived over, well, the years of my life, but also my study of history. And that is that there is this hierarchy of needs, psychologists of various, you know, talked about hierarchies of needs and so on. But there, there are things that bother you, threaten you, frighten you. And you deal with the most pressing ones, the ones that can kill you immediately. So during the war, the greatest concern of the patriots, the one in favor of independence, we got to win the war. You know, we have to deal with that. Food, shelter, et cetera. Right, right. But at a political level. Mm -hmm. So for the people who are engaged in, in public life, we have to win the war and we can pull together long enough to, to win the war. But then as soon as you take that greatest threat away, that one's sort of gone. They're not, they're not going to be hanged as traitors once the British sail away. Then the other annoyances, the differences of opinion, they rise to the top. And so there's almost a spring-loaded device where you deal with the highest threat, remove that, and then the next one pops up. And so things that wouldn't have even bothered him when Hamilton describes as caprice and folly and all this stuff, I mean, those were big deals in 1778 and 1779. Would Congress appropriate the money to feed the army at Valley Forge? This sort of thing. Okay, um, you know, we're going to deal with that. And when the war is over, we did it, we won. And then it's, again, tempting to think that the other kinds of annoyances will pale by comparison. We'll be able to get right past them. No, in fact, they don't pale by comparison. They rise to the top of this list of annoyances, of things that we're going to dispute about. And so the disputes, it's true that this disputes after the war are not immediately as murderous as the disputes during the war. When patriots and loyalists, they fought very bitterly against each other in, in armed battle. Now, the battles that were fought after the war are not usually armed, although, without spoiling the end of my story, Alexander Hamilton doesn't survive. He gets killed in a duel with Aaron Burr. And it was based in this partisan difference between the two. There was personal stuff going on as well. But And by the way, that, that's, uh, that is of some comfort when I, when I think we look at politics today. As nasty as it's been, people are not fighting duels at, you know, 10 paces. So thankfully. <laughs> that, that's, that's the standard we hold ourselves to. 
That, that's right. It's yeah. kind of a low bar to get over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who's the, the cast of characters, if you will? Who are the main players and, and how do they fall along partisan divides as you look at this era in history? Okay, when you read the subtitle, it's Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams. So Hamilton and Madison are the two driving forces behind what is really nothing less than a coup against the existing government of the United States. Hamilton especially, Madison as well. Hamilton was on the staff of George Washington during the Revolutionary War. James Madison was in Congress, a member of the Continental Congress and the Congress of Confederation. And both of them became very impatient with what they considered to be the slowness of Congress to act, the unwillingness of the states to exceed their own interests to the national interest. And so they began talking about changing the Articles of Confederation. Now, at first, they started talking simply about amending the Articles of Confederation. But they quickly ran up against the fact that the Articles of, of Confederation were nearly impossible to amend. An amendment required ratification by every one of the 13 states. And in politics, you, you never get everybody behind something. So that simply wasn't going to happen. So what they did was, under the guise of merely proposing amendments to the Articles of Confederation, they call a convention. And they, they say, we, we need to talk about things like trade. There were trade wars, tariff wars, between the, the independent states. Again, it's important to bear in mind that the states at that time were and considered themselves sovereign, one to the other. So people in Pennsylvania could not tell New York what to do at all, and vice versa, and all the other states accordingly. Do you think it's fairer to almost look at them as independent countries that are just kind of loosely affiliated? Most definitely. And indeed, the chief executive in several of the states during this period were called presidents rather than governors. And they treated themselves as president. George Washington actually was president of Pennsylvania. Anyhow, so they said, okay, we need to create something, and I'll use a, a modern analogy, something like the European Union. The EU started out as a trade block. It was a free trade block. And so we have to eliminate trade barriers. And that's what they said they were going to Philadelphia to do. We're going to devise the rules so that there's a unified policy on trade. And we ought to have a unified foreign policy as well, because Britain is still lurking around, and who knows what France and Spain are going to be up to. So we need to be able to pull together in terms of defense. And again, this is very much, this was very much the spirit of the creation of the European Union. Okay, it was a, a trade organization, and then there was going to be some sort of coordination, foreign affairs and military affairs, although in the case of the EU, it's a little bit confused by the membership of most of them in NATO. But anyway, that's what they advertised. Come to Philadelphia, help us propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. And everybody knew that these were merely proposals. And if any single state said, no, we don't want it, then nothing, nothing comes of it. As soon as the delegates get to the Constitutional Convention, get to Philadelphia, and they go inside the Pennsylvania State House, Hamilton and Madison lock the doors, close the doors, lock the doors, swear everybody to secrecy, and say, you know what? We're not just going to amend the Articles of Confederation. We're going to tear them up and start over again. And this was actually the first motion that was put before this convention. And they agree. Now, there were some people who were skeptical. There were some, especially from the smaller states, who believed that they were going to lose some of their autonomy. But they all still were operating on the principle that, okay, if the states don't agree to it, it's not going to happen. But here's where they really pulled a fast one. And Things could have gotten exceedingly dicey. So the Articles Confederation said everybody has to agree before there's any major change. What the delegates to the Constitutional Convention of 1787 said is when nine 
states, nine of the 13, when nine states agree to this new constitution, it will take effect. Now, nobody knew, nobody knows today what would have happened if nine states had agreed and four states had said, no, we're going to stick to the old one. And, and here's a little bit, I, I don't know if your, your listeners pay much attention to college football, but some of the college football conferences, they're just emptying out. And people are rearranging, and they're just, you know, in the, on the West Coast, there are a couple of teams, the only teams left in the Pac-12. Are they still the conference? Anyway, so this is one of the reasons that the debate over ratification of the Constitution was such a big deal, because the Constitution did get nine votes fairly quickly. But two of the two biggest states, New York and Virginia, had not yet ratified. And these were absolutely crucial, because you could get nine states, but you did, if you didn't have the big ones, then this new thing wouldn't work. It just wouldn't take off. And who knew what the, the future would hold? And so this is why the debate over Constitution becomes so bitter, why it becomes so divisive. And this is where the first party system emerges. Now, it's not accidental that these two states were the home states of Madison, that's Virginia, and Hamilton, that's New York. So, I mean, one of the reasons that the Constitutional Convention, this, this new venture, was credible, was that it was organized by a Virginian and a New Yorker. Now, if it had just been organized by a South Carolinian and a Connecticut man, yeah, nobody would have paid any attention, but these are the two big states. And in some ways, these are the states that have the most to gain by this, because everybody recognizes that the system of representation in this national government is going to have to change. Because under the Articles of Confederation, each state had one equal vote, equal to all the other ones. And so Virginia's vote could be canceled by Rhode Island's vote. And there were 20 times as many people living in Virginia as in Rhode Island. And to the Virginians, this didn't seem fair at all. And so something was going to have to give. Something was going to have to change. So the first part of my book is about this movement to rewrite the Constitution. I spend a fair amount of time on the Constitutional Convention. And it's, again, it's worth remembering that those people who do go to the Constitutional Convention are essentially in favor of this project. The people aren't in favor of the project. They stay away. The project is to create a stronger central government. Now, everybody at the Constitutional Convention wants a stronger central government. The question is, how much stronger and where will its powers lie? And in this ongoing tension, struggle, conflict indeed, between the existing states and this new national government, where do you draw the dividing lines of authority? And for anything relating to political authority, then the question ultimately comes, so who reigns in whom? If somebody oversteps, who says you've overstepped, you can't go any farther than that? How do you enforce the rules? So anyway, these are the debates that arise at the Constitutional Convention, and these are the debates that essentially inform the whole campaign about the ratification of the Constitution. And this is when the first split, the first party split in America post-independence takes place. And it's for the simple reason that you've got this simple yes or no question to answer. Yes for the Constitution? No, we don't want the Constitution. And so in American history, it is the case that we have always had two parties. We've never had three. I mean, the, the third party, we've had some third parties, but they're just fractional things that really don't matter much at all. We don't have three, we don't have four, we don't have five. And a reason for this is that in a democratic political system, unless you deliberately foster third, fourth, fifth parties, Everything comes down ultimately to a yes or no vote. 
do you want this candidate or not? Do you want this bill to pass or not? Do you want this constitution to be ratified or not? And so people who have mildly different views, let's say in 1788, amid the, the debate over ratification of the constitution, some will say, I want a very much stronger central government. And somebody says, I want a somewhat stronger central government. Well, those two, they'll align forces. They say, okay, we both agree for a stronger central government. Now, the ones who are against the Constitution, these are the ones who didn't go to the convention. You know, they stayed away. They didn't want to go to the convention. They didn't want a stronger central government. And in the vote on ratification, they say no. So the first group are called the Federalists. And they're called the Federalists because they want a stronger Federalist government. And they write a series of essays that come to be called the Federalist Papers. And these are Hamilton and Madison and John Jay, the third author. And so calling them the Federalists straightforward. Their opponents, at least at that point, are typically called anti-Federalists. Now, they're not going to be called anti-Federalists for long, in part because just negative branding like this is not really propitious. Because eventually they want to say, what it is they stand for, not what it is they stand against. But then also, they lose the first big debate. The Constitution is ratified. So once you've got a government up and running under this Constitution, it doesn't make much sense to call yourself anti this thing that is no longer an issue anymore. So this other group, the second group, this is the one that comes to be called the Republicans. Now, in fact, it's a little bit confusing because this party is going to reconfigure and change names and become the, the forerunner of our modern Democratic Party, whereas the modern Republican Party doesn't come along until the 1850s. But they called themselves Republicans, and so it was Republicans against Federalists. I've been curious, why, why Republicans too? Because it always has struck me that Republicans feels like they're kind of for the Republic, but they're really strongly towards states' rights. Ah, so this is where we get into how, how the different groups look at themselves and how they look at the other side. Is this the first political branding of our country? It's a little bit, but it's deeper than branding. It goes to the conception of what parties are and, and whether they're legitimate or not. So during this period, there's a tendency for both sides to think of their people as not forming a party and their actions as not being partisan. We have the national interests at heart. It's those other guys, the guys on the other side. They are narrowly interested. They are short-sighted and they are factional. These are bad factionalists. So you see that the anti-federalists, so this is Jefferson's side. And I should add here, Madison gravitates eventually toward Jefferson's side. Maybe we'll say a little bit more about Madison in the future, but he was a driver of the federalist project. But then once the federal government got up and running, he became sort of mildly sobered, even appalled by what he had created. And so he moves away from Hamilton over to the side of Jefferson. But anyway, Jefferson's side, they don't call the Federalists Federalists. They call them monocrats, autocrats, Anglomen. And we'll probably get into this business of whose side in the European war do you take on? Because this is an explosive part of this whole story. And whereas the Federalists didn't call the Republicans Republicans, they typically called them radicals. They called them Jacobins. This was a term of opprobrium for a certain group in the French Revolution, the ones with blood all over their hands. And so we're a long way from that moment when in a competitive political system, one side can say, yes, I favor my side, but I agree that we need a strong opposition party. And in fact, it's comparatively rare in American history that either side has enough sort of foresight and selflessness to be able to say that. It's almost always, we're the good guys, and those other guys are bad people. 
They're the ones who are engaged in partisanship. We're just engaged in patriotic activities. And that has remained true to this day, I think. Oh, yeah. I'm always struck in talking with folks on this podcast about how so many truisms are far, far, far older than you might think at first blush. Yeah. One, one kind of sidestep I wanted to take here, which is looking at the Philadelphia Convention, because you note there that George Washington really stood above the fray. He, he was not a particularly great orator. He didn't necessarily view himself as, as somebody who should be uh, getting into the arguments all the time. And I think that has served him well historically and served him well at the time. And I'm always cognizant of the idea that you don't want to subscribe necessarily to this great man theory of history, that, that history is just swung around uh, great people doing great acts. But it struck me that because Washington didn't, quote unquote, sully himself in the debate at the Philadelphia Convention, that he, he really became a mythical figure uh, of sorts. And I wonder, I'm, I'm trying to resist great man history here, but that really jumped out to me that that, that standing apart and then not to mention his stepping down after two terms, which I think is arguably one of the greatest things that anybody in history has ever done. Those two things, it's really hard to get away from great man history looking at him. Okay, well, let me put a perspective on these as contemporary the times. So at the Constitutional Convention, there were two people who stood out for not getting sort of down and dirty in the debates. And these were George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. And there's a reason for this, that both these men were as famous as they would ever hope to be. They were as distinguished as they would ever hope to be before this convention began. They were really beyond ambition. Now, Franklin, indeed, was almost on his deathbed. And so he wasn't, there was nothing after this. George Washington had already retired to Mount Vernon. And he came out of retirement to attend this constitutional convention. He certainly was realistic enough to expect that if this new government takes shape, he'll be asked to play a role. But for him, it was essentially a victory lap, a gift in a reward for having led the country to independence. What he did as president was kind of beside the point. And he was, and here, this is the key thing, he was beyond ambition. He wasn't going to get anything out of the presidency that he didn't have already. And so he didn't have to think sort of what his next act was for everybody else involved, and including my, the four guys that I focus on, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams. They all hoped that they had a more brilliant chapter of their particular careers ahead of them. Each one thought, boy, I'd really like to be president of this place because Jefferson had been governor. And of course, he'd written the Declaration of Independence, and, and Adams was one of the stalwarts of independence. And for Hamilton in particular, Hamilton was still climbing that career ladder. So I've long been intrigued in my observation and my writing of history about the interplay between personal characteristics and the big themes, what I, I call the distinction between little history, that's the history of private life, and big history, this is the history of public life. And so for each, and this is one of the reasons that I tend to, I tend toward biographical treatment of the subject that I'm writing about. That's why I focus on these individuals, because I want to see how it unfolds in their heads. And with Hamilton, for example, you can see, you can just feel, you can read the ambition oozing from between the lines. It just jumps off the pages with his writing. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, he's the immigrant kid come to America, going to make good. And to do it, he has to, he has to make sure that everybody realizes how smart he is. 
And he, he was brave under fire and battle. So he, he had the kind of characteristics he wanted, except, except that it turns out. So when I'm talking about this subject to my students and to audiences, I'm, uh, sometimes, you know, the question comes up. So after everything we know about Alexander Hamilton, you know, even down, he's got this musical made about him. How come he was never president of the United States? And if I, when I put the question to my students, inevitably a couple of, a few bright students will raise their hand and say, oh, oh, he wasn't born in the United States. And the constitution says you have to be a natural born citizen. I say, well, that's not exactly right because the rest of that sentence is, or a citizen at the time of the adoption of the constitution. Because the United States didn't exist before this. And so he was grandfathered in. No, the real reason Hamilton didn't become president was nobody liked him. People admired him. Some of them respected him, but nobody liked him. And to a degree that none of these people realized yet, the politics that they were creating was, well, it finally became and is still a politics of popularity. Because if you're, if you're really putting yourself before the voters in a, in a serious way, then it comes down to, do they like you? I mean, do they like you better than the person you're running against? In today's parlance, could they have a beer with you? Precisely, precisely. Now, this was only coming into view, and at first in the States, before it gets to the federal level, during the 1790s, and it, it would really take over and become the norm in American politics with the election of Andrew Jackson in the late 1820s, because he was the first really ordinary person to become president of the United States. But that's the reason that Hamilton you know, just wouldn't make it, because nobody would vote for him. And the other characters, they all, my other figures, they all have their own personalities. They all have their own way of viewing this stuff. Another reason that I like to focus on individuals is to the extent possible, I, I let them tell their own stories. And so this, and in this case, I chose four people, uh, two who are going to wind up on one side, two who are going to wind up on the other side. And it really helps a lot for this period that these people and the kind of people who were active in politics, they were very articulate. And so if I let Jefferson speak his piece, it's a wonderful piece that he will speak. And Hamilton the same way, and Madison and, and Adams. And in fact, I chose these four in part because once I've introduced them to the readers, I think that readers will be able to identify who's speaking writing, actually, but who's speaking, even if I just pointed to a paragraph in the middle of the page, because Hamilton has a particular way of speaking, Adams has his own way of speaking, Jefferson, Madison, so on. So anyway, it's, this, it's the way these personalities come together and how they deal with the big issues that the country was facing. I was struck by, I guess, a surprising new perspective on the Bill of Rights in particular reading the book, because we all learn about it in elementary school, middle school, high school, et cetera. It's the Bill of Rights. It's just this thing that was kind of tacked on after the Constitution was, was ratified and so forth. But I had never really thought of it through the lens as, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's really kind of an anti-federalist requirement rather than this kind of groundswell of, of rights-focused thinking, which is, I think, how I've always thought about it to some degree. Is that fair? Yeah. As far as it goes, yes, because the Constitution was put before the American people, and they would vote by states and conventions to either accept or reject this new Constitution. And the people who were in favor of the new government, they were generally in favor of the new government, and they, they weren't pointing out missing aspects of this Constitution. And there were people who were opposed, and on no grounds would they approve what they considered to be a power grab by this newly created government. And they didn't know where this was going. And they thought, if anything, it was going in the direction of Britain. And it was taking America back to the bad old days. 
And in time, some of them would speak of George Washington as King George I of America. But there were some in the middle who were persuadable, largely because they were dissatisfied with the way the Articles of Confederation were operating. And so they're going to make a change, but they're concerned that this new charter, this new government, does not contain a Bill of Rights. They'd gotten used to the English Bill of Rights, which is not just written down on a single piece of paper, it accrued over time. But all of the state constitutions had their bills of rights, and these are basically self-deployed handcuffs on government. Okay, we cannot do this, we cannot do this, we cannot do this. And a lot of the people who were persuadable on the subject of ratification of the Constitution said, well, yeah, but we're worried that there is no Bill of Rights. And Madison, who was the principal author of the Constitution, he had this kind of pride of authorship. And, you know, don't change a word, it's perfect as is. But the more he listened to these arguments, the more he realized in the first place it's politically necessary to give some ground. And so he was willing to say informally that if you guys vote in favor, then we'll add a Bill of Rights. And he's thinking to himself, and I'm going to write the Bill of Rights. So he was realistically enough to know that if rules have to be written, I'd rather write the rules myself. But in the course of sort of defending the Constitution without a Bill of Rights, and then conceding that there is this popular demand, so we're going to have to have it, and then thinking, well, actually, maybe it's not such a bad idea, because he initially said that, no, no, you don't understand. This Constitution is a positive charter, and it gives to this central government only the powers that are positively identified in the Constitution. And if the Constitution doesn't say Congress can do this, then Congress cannot. Said the critics, the skeptics, wait a minute, come on, get realistic. Governments, politicians, they gravitate toward power. And unless you tell them they really can't, 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 they will try. So better at the outset just to say, you cannot do this. So Hamilton, in writing the Bill of Rights, he actually had 12 amendments, but only 10 of them were adopted. And that, those are the ones we know as the first 10 amendments in the Bill of Rights. He gradually persuaded himself that, you know, maybe putting some shackles, putting some bounds on this new government, maybe that's a pretty good idea. And no sooner had the Bill of Rights been ratified and added to the Constitution, then Hamilton comes forward with this exceedingly ambitious program for what this new government should be doing. And Madison began to think, oh my gosh, maybe I've created a monster here. Not Hamilton, he didn't create Hamilton, but this new government. And Hamilton seemed to be bent on proving the skeptics of the new federal government because he was doing everything that they said he was going to do. And this gets into the First Bank of the U.S. and so forth. Exactly. Uh, the assumption of the debts from the, the Revolutionary War, including the debts of the states. Now, this was something, this is a kind of technical thing. It has no counterpart in modern history. So most of my students, most people today really don't understand what this meant. But there were, there were two sets of debts from the Revolutionary War. There was the debt of the national government. The government had borrowed money from France and from other people and from individuals uh, to fund the war. But so had each of the states. Now, when Hamilton came forward and said, okay, this new government under this constitution should pay off the federal debts, the national debts, nobody thought that was unusual. Although there was some grumbling because in the space between the end of the war, actually the space for the issuance of the debts even during the war, and the time when the question of those debts re-arose in late 1780s and early 1790s, the ownership of a lot of the debt had changed. And a lot of people who had been so hard-pressed simply to keep 
food on the table and a roof over their heads, had sold their bonds, their government bonds, to speculators, sometimes for as little as a dime on the dollar. And now these speculators were lobbying with the government to pay him at 100 cents on the dollar. And the people who had sold them in these moments of duress said, wait a minute, this isn't such a good idea, especially since our taxes are going to be the ones to, to pay these speculators. And a lot of the folks who had sold them, correct me if I'm wrong, were people who had fought in the revolution, right? These were soldiers. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So part of the debt was salary, was wages owed to the soldiers and that Congress hadn't gotten around to paying yet. And yeah, so they had to sell what the government had been very delayed in paying them. And now they're not going to get it at all. And to add insult to injury, they're going to have to pay taxes to pay the people off who had purchased these woods out of their distress. But then beyond that, Hamilton said, oh, and the national government ought to pay the state debts as well. Now, wait a minute. In some respects, the states are kind of happy for this because it relieves them of their debts, but not all the states, because some of the states had very thriftily and responsibly repaid their debts. And so, of course, you know, nothing in life comes free, and they're going to have to pay taxes to pay off the free riders. But, but beyond this, what is going to happen is all the attention that is paid by the bondholders and wealthy folks generally is going to be shifted from the state capitals to the national government. And this was exactly Hamilton's justification for doing this. He said he wanted the rich people, he wanted the creditors of the government to be worried about the longevity of the national government, to shift their loyalties from the, national, to, from the states to the nation. Anyway, so for Madison, this was a step too far. And so this is when he basically bails out of the Federalist side and joins Jefferson on the Republican side. Uh, I didn't know that. The first bank of the U.S. I've talked about with several guests because it just touches on so many different topics. And I could talk for hours just about that one because it's, it's a really fascinating topic with so many different facets that, that we still contend with today. Oh, yeah. One of the things that really stuck out to me in reading your book was Jefferson won the election in, in 1800. The, the anti-federalist, the, the anti-federalist Republican won. The, the guy that was more for states' rights, simplistically, than, than the federal government. But since then, and this is the, the tension I, I felt reading the book, and, and I, I wonder why, since then, the country has really slowly moved towards a stronger executive, a stronger federal government. And what seems odd to me is that it seems like the anti-federalists, the Republicans, the, the states' rights folks, they won. Jefferson won. He, he was in the executive branch. And yet, the arc of the country has been towards a stronger executive and stronger federal government. This is a big question, I know, but why do you think that tension exists there? Because reading just about this moment in history, you might think, ah, the Republicans won, the states' rights folks won. Yeah. So I'll give a few reasons. So the reason that would be pointed out by those people who are in favor of a stronger central government, and we'll call them you know, modern Democrats who tend in that direction. They would say that in modern times, as the nation grows, as the population grows, as the demands of modern life evolve, we recognize that we need a stronger central government. For example, in the 1790s, it didn't occur to anybody that government ought to provide old age pensions for people. Pensions, nobody had pensions. They didn't live long enough to have pensions. Most of the people were farmers. And in any event, you look to yourself and your family. Well, times had changed. There's an industrial revolution that would take place. During the and during this critical moment in the 1930s, many of the states, the states themselves, 
effectively went bankrupt. So the only institution left to support people at that time was the national government. And so modern liberals, modern people who look to the government to solve problems, they would say it's just a recognition that as times change, governments have to take on more stuff. Nobody worried about environmental legislation in the 1790s because there wasn't industry, there weren't cars or any of this stuff to mess up the environment. But eventually, when there were those things, people realized you can't deal with pollution simply state by state because smog generated in New Jersey blows across the Hudson into New York. So there's that. And then the other part of it is that the United States develops a full-time foreign policy. And foreign policy is something really that only the central government can do. So if you're in favor, or at least not too uncomfortable with the larger central government, you say, it's a natural evolution. If you're a skeptic of this, if you're a modern conservative, you would say, well, it's in the nature of power. It also, you give people power and they always want more power. And it doesn't make any difference how they view themselves philosophically. They would point to Jefferson as a really good example. Jefferson, before he became president, he said the president ought to be weak, the central government ought to be weak, it ought to defer to the states. And one of the first things Jefferson did was to double the size of the United States by purchasing territory from France. And there's nothing in the Constitution that even hints at the idea of the, the national government acquiring new territory. This, this was the Louisiana Purchase. Louisiana Purchase, yes. And Jefferson was, I guess he was a consistent enough philosophically at least to be bothered by this, to realize, uh-oh. <laughs> even if he was a hypocrite, he was bothered by his hypocrisy. Precisely. He, yeah. he had enough conscience to be a hypocrite, at least. And beyond <laughs> that, and beyond that then, Jefferson was one who, before his second term was out, he persuaded Congress to pass the Embargo Act. Now, the Embargo Act said that nobody can export anything. There has never been a heavier-handed use of federal power than that. And so Federalists, who were watching Jefferson just to say, <laughs> yeah, we knew it. We knew he was this closet autocrat if we just let him in. So there's that version of it. And then there's another aspect to this. So occasionally I get asked, more than occasionally, I get asked the question, well, so what would uh, John Adams do if he came back to life today and he saw what was going on here? What would Jefferson do in all this stuff? And I always have to say, I don't know. Um, but the, the, what they really want to know is, would, would Alexander Hamilton, for example, be in favor of a bigger central government that exists today? Because, of course, he was in favor of a much bigger central government than existed in the 1790s. And the answer to that one is, I really don't know. And I really don't know because the baseline of government power today is so much higher. It's, the government is so much, the government is 30 times as big. I just pull a num big number out of the air. 30 times as big today as it was in, in Hamilton's time. Now, Hamilton thought that the government then was too small. Did he think that two times the government, three times the government was the right size? Would he have said, no, I want it 30 or 40 times the size? No, he never would have. So he was a big government guy in the 1790s. Would, be, would he be a big government guy today? I don't know, because the government's so much bigger to start with. It's a really interesting lens. I, I wonder if there's just a a gravity towards big government, it might be fair to say yes. Well, there, there certainly is. And in any number of cases, candidates for the American presidency have complained at the use of power by the incumbent. And as soon as they get into power, they stop complaining about the power grabs. And, you know, you see this in the last two administrations. So Democrats were bitterly opposed to all the things Donald Trump was doing by executive authority when he was president. And then when Trump leaves and Biden comes in and Congress won't go along with what Biden wants, well, Biden uses executive authority. So I guess you would say that if you're president, you use the 
the levers of power that come to hand. And ideally, you would want Congress to just agree with everything that you say, but Congress doesn't do that. So then what do you do? Do you just throw up your hands and say, okay, I'm going home? The one president who did that was James Buchanan. James Buchanan in the early 1860s did not believe that the Southern states had a right, had a constitutional right to secede from the Union. But he didn't do anything because he said, well, the Constitution doesn't give me the authority to resist with military force secession. So he just said, okay, uh, my power is limited. Now, to the extent that presidential candidates are students of history, they may or may not know that James Buchanan is consistently rated the worst president in American history. And so nobody wants to be that guy. Yeah. Do you think some of the rancor that you wrote about was ultimately tempered by a respect, if not a friendliness, between the folks that you write about? And, and I, I thinking, I'm thinking specifically about Jefferson and Adams. After their presidential terms, there was really a reconciliation between the two of them. They became, if not friends, they were at least mutually respectful. Do you think that was a necessary component of the success early in the days of the Republic? And do you think that that has waned since then, as you look backwards? I'll say this. The political classes were a small group in the 1780s and 90s. Everybody knew everybody else. And they assumed, in fact, that something like that was necessary for actually running the governments. The reason that we have an electoral college, because the framers of the Constitution didn't think that voters in Massachusetts would know enough about a candidate from South Carolina to be, make a reasonable judgment. But the electors chosen by the people, these would be a smaller group that would know some of these people. So that was part of it. But this the personal connection could work both ways. So indeed, there was a fundamental respect between Adams and Jefferson. The two had collaborated very successfully in the Continental Congress. They had been on the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence, and they developed a good deal of respect one for the other. It was, it was difficult for them emotionally when they found themselves on the opposite sides of the partisan divide in the 1790s. And there was a moment, a moment, there was a period of about two decades where they didn't speak to each other. They didn't write to each other. And it was after the election of 1800, which Adams got out of town before the inauguration. He didn't stick around for Jefferson's inauguration. Uh, but eventually they came back. And some of this was because they recognized that they had this pre-existing, pre-party politics, this, this memory of having worked together to create this country. So there was that. But sometimes the personal element could actually make things worse. So Hamilton and Aaron Burr, they got into it personally. They got into it politically, but they got into it personally. In part, it was because they were both from New York. They were both really smart lawyers. Each one considered himself to be the brightest light in the New York bar. They had contested in New York politics. They continued to contest in New York politics. But here's the critical thing, that after Jefferson's election um, and his inauguration in 1801, Jefferson um, and Burr was Jefferson's vice president. But even then, the vice presidency was an unimportant office. And it was very clear that Jefferson favored James Madison, whom he named Secretary of State, as his successor. So Burr realized that he was being pushed out. He had simply been used by Jefferson to deliver the New York electoral vote. And so Burr is sort of looking around for something else to do. And he decides, while vice president, to run for governor of New York. And he runs for governor of New York. But Aaron Burr is still bitterly opposed to him and says some nasty things about Burr. So Hamilton is opposed to Burr, and Hamilton says nasty things about Burr, and Burr says, hey, you know, you know, would you say that? Take that back. And one thing leads to another, and they get involved in a duel. And, and part of the reason for the duel is both parties saw that their, their star had kind of risen and then maybe begun to fall. 
because, and this was a way of sort of recapturing a moment, recapturing honor, dignity, and all this. And they have this duel. And in the duel, Alexander Hamilton is shot and he dies. So this is one where the personal element, far from easing the partisan difficulties, tended to enhance them. So coming into my, my two final questions here, and, and I, I always like to bridge the gap between history, bring the historical moment or moments or ideas being written about into modern context, because I, I think it's very important. We've touched on this a lot. And, and one of the two of these questions bringing what you wrote about in, in your book to today is, is regarding Jefferson. And he wrote a, a line which really stood out to me that you quoted near the end of the book. Thomas Jefferson wrote, no society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. Every constitution then and every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years, which was how long he thought a, a generation was. If it be enforced longer, it is an act of force and not of right. That kind of gave me shivers. I mean, I, it's just a very profound thing to say, I think. Adams wrote to Jefferson very early on that he was afraid that the country was on the brink of dissolution. And I think that is a sentiment that holds true even to this day. There's a lot of hand-wringing all the time that the country is on the brink of dissolution. Why do you think that was such a common feeling both then and now? Do you think that's somehow central to our particular form of government? Some of it reflects the fact that this experiment in self-government was hardly a decade old at the time that, that Adams writes that. And as I mentioned earlier, the Articles of Confederation, the predecessor to the Constitution, hadn't lasted a decade, and it had fallen apart. And it had fallen apart largely because there were riots, there were revolts, rebellions in, the, in various states that threatened the, the central government and threatened the commitment of Americans to the central government. So the question really always was, will this, this union of the states hold together? Because the alternative, the fallback was, okay, they just go back to being independent states. And that's what Adams was worried about there. That's what they all were worried about. It was a bigger deal for Adams being a federalist than, say, for Jefferson. So I begin my story sort of at the end. So my prologue is in that moment when the election of 1800 is still being contested, but it's being contested in the House of Representatives. And the question underlying all of this is, Will the party in power peacefully leave power and hand it over to the other party? This is the, the acid test of any system of government. You know, it's not the first election. It's not even the second election, but it's the election in which the incumbents lose. Will they leave power peacefully? Will they accept the count of the vote and leave? And America passed this test. This is what Jefferson called the Revolution of 1800, the revolution, this change in power, and the fact that it was a peaceful revolution. And this is one of the things that has especially worried the historically-minded folks in America when the January 6th uprising riot occurred in 2021, where there was a substantial section of the incumbent party that was saying, we don't want to leave. And it was encouraged by the incumbent president. So my story ends when the Federalists quietly leave and hand over, uh, hand over power to the Republicans. But the story is still ongoing. This question of are you going to hand over power peacefully and leave, it's an open question. Mm -hmm. And a decision every, every time power shifts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what's unique about your book versus the, a lot of the conversations I've had on this is that in many ways, the topic you're writing about is ongoing today. It's this 
partisanship and the, the power going back and forth between different parties. And as a final question, I always like to ask my guests what they learn from their study that, that can be brought forward to today, that applies to today's world. But again, I think in a lot of ways you're, you're writing about today's world through a historical lens in some sense, because that partisanship, the, the party divide exists today. And so the question I was really keen on, on hearing you uh, talk about here is, is my final question is, do you think that that two-party strife is perhaps a, a feature of the system, or do you think it's a bug? I think it's an, an inevitable accompaniment of competitive politics. If you don't like two parties, well, consider the alternative. It's one party. And one party, that's not democracy. People don't get a choice. So I would say there's that. And I would say the last thing, the, the abiding lesson of all this, is that, as you suggested, with every election there is a test. Do the losers accept their defeat? And Jefferson's generation, Adams' generation, it passed the test. And it seemed to be the crucial test because that's the first time it happened then. But as we saw with 2021, the test is always implicitly there. And just because we've passed it every time in the past, that I should add, not every time, when the South lost the election of 1860, they said, we're out of here. So that was a, a bad experience. That's what happens when you don't accept the outcome of the election. But every time we have an election, this is the test that the American electorate, the American elected officials, everybody... It's put to them, and they have to pass it again. Nothing can be taken for granted. That's profound. Well, I love reading the book. Uh, and, and Bill, thank you for joining. Again, for everybody listening, the book is called Founding Partisans, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams, and the Brawling Birth of American Politics. And it really was a brawl. We, we only touched on a little bit on this conversation. If you want to learn more about H.W. Brands and his work, visit hwbrands.substack.com. Thank you so much for joining. I really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure, Alex. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2023 by Wesley Capital, LLC. 